Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. A little bird was flying south for the winter. It got so cold it froze up and fell to the ground in a large field. And while it was lying there, a cow came by and dropped some manure on it. As it lay there in the pile of manure, it began to realize how warm it was. The manure was actually thawing him out. And this tiny little bird just laid there, all warm and happy, and soon began to sing for joy. A cat, passing by, heard the little bird singing and came to investigate. He followed the sound of the bird and discovered him underneath the pile of manure. The cat quickly dug him out and then ate him. The morals of the story are, one, not everyone who drops manure on you is your enemy. Two, not everyone who digs you out of a pile of manure is your friend. And third, when you are in the manure, keep your mouth shut. Well, as we continue our study of Daniel, we find that the nation of Israel was in a very difficult position. Babylon had taken them into captivity. But were they an enemy or a friend? Persia would come looking like an enemy, but they would be the friend that would allow the Hebrew people to return home. Alexander the Great would be a friend to them, but some of those that came out of his empire would not be, especially Antiochus Epiphanes. The Hebrew people were without a home, in a state of transition, and they desperately needed a reminder from God that they could trust him and his plan for his chosen people. This is the only way they could navigate the dangers of the world before them. Bible's open to Daniel 8, and we pick up our text with verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who is speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning, that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and stood me upright. And he said, Look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of indignation. For at the appointed time, the end shall be. In this vision, verses 9 through 12 taught us of the little horn that would one day trample the Jews. We identified this man as Antichus Epiphanes from the Seleucid kingdom. He defiled the temple of God. Antichus sacrificed a pig on the altar of God in the Hebrew temple and made the people worship idols under the penalty of death. The God of the Hebrews revealed all of this to Daniel roughly 375 years before it would take place. Notice again verse 13 with me. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who is speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary 
and the host to be trampled underfoot. Daniel was overhearing this in the vision. Holy one and another holy one, two angels speaking. We saw this in chapter 4. The holy ones refer to the angels of God. Angels have questions right now. Angels are much more powerful than men in our frail condition, but they don't have all the answers. Remember, it was Lucifer who brought sin into the universe. Sin did not begin on earth. It began in heaven. The battle rages on earth, but sin has affected all of creation. And as we move forward in Daniel, we're going to see that the angels are directly involved in the battle. We don't know what the first angel said, but we do know that the second angel responded with a question. How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? This is another one of these verses in Daniel that actually drives our interpretation. The timing of the vision. How long will these events last? The answer is what follows. How long would this vision of the sacrifices, the sanctuary, the temple of God being desolated by Antichus, how long would this go on? How long would this wicked man be allowed to trample the host, God's people? I know verse 13 sounds like a bad joke. What did one angel say to the other angel? But if you want to understand Daniel 8, recognize the significance here. Understand that this question sets up the answer that follows. And obviously, this conversation between the angels was for the benefit of Daniel and all who would come after, who would read and study this great section of God's word. And this is why in verse 14, we see that the angel answered and spoke directly to Daniel. Daniel records, he said to me, The angel that asked the question did not seem surprised that Jerusalem and the temple would be defiled because the sin, the apostasy of the Jews over the centuries and the righteous judgment of a holy God was something that they knew. But this had to be terrifying to Daniel. The Jews were in captivity in Babylon. Jerusalem and the temple lay in ruins. Daniel and the faithful remnant of God were looking to the time when they could go back to their land to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. And here we have a vision from God coming to Daniel, telling of the time when the temple would be desecrated again. Heartbreaking. Discouraging. Daniel had to wonder if the Jewish people would ever learn to walk with God. Notice carefully the wording of verse 14. For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Given the continued growth of and the confusion that surrounds the Seventh-day Adventist church, I believe it is my duty before God to take the time to explain to you how an incorrect understanding of this text has led millions astray. William Miller, born in the year 1782, he grew up at a time and place where formal education was not all that easy to come by. He was an avid reader and for many years was a deist. A deist, someone who believed in a natural religion. They believed God set the universe in motion but didn't really intervene. After the War of 1812, William Miller became a Baptist. Deists don't take the Bible literally, so they believe it has a lot of inconsistencies. And when William became a Baptist, his friends ridiculed him for actually believing the Bible, because in their minds it was simply too inconsistent to believe. William responded by setting out to harmonize all of the teachings of the Bible that were said to have inconsistencies. All he had was a concordance and a Bible. And during this time, he came across this prophecy in Daniel. But you have to understand, 
that the popular teaching of the day was that the cleansing of the temple talked about in Daniel 8 was the purification of the world by fire at the second coming of Christ. William Miller took this interpretation, but then he read into verse 14 that the days here, or more literally mornings and evenings, he read into the text that this doesn't really refer to days, but instead it refers to years. Instead of taking the text at face value, instead of holding to the idea that words have meaning, he did like so many do today. He read into the text and said that days here refers to years. William started with the year 456 BC. He added 2300 years, misunderstanding verse 14, and came up with the date of 1844 AD. He taught that Christ would return by 1844. William was not a pastor or a scholar, and he'd never really been in the ministry, but after some time studying this text here in Daniel 8, he became more convinced that he was right. So listen to what he did next. He prayed that if someone would ask him to preach, that he would begin to share his interpretation of Daniel 8. Do yourself a favor. Don't pray like that. God doesn't always promise to give us a sign if we ask him to. God's wisdom is already found in his word. You want instruction from God? Look in his word. Base your decisions not on signs, but on the principles found in the Word of God. William convinced a lot of people, and there is a reason. The popular teaching back then was that verse 14 referred to the second coming of Christ. It didn't make it right, but that was often taught. William didn't argue against the idea. He just put a date on it, a date that was close at hand and scared a lot of people. He started teaching on this in 1831. He preached at Baptist. Methodist, Presbyterian, and Congregational churches. By the time October the 22nd of 1844 rolled around the day Christ was supposed to come back, there was over 100,000 people that were involved with this movement. And when Christ did not return, well, the movement backpedaled and changed their teaching. Instead of this text meaning that Christ would return to the earth in 1844, they said then it meant that he would cleanse the sanctuary in heaven in 1844. I'm not really sure why God's sanctuary in heaven would need cleansing, but we'll save that for a different day. And when William Miller died in 1849, a woman by the name of Ellen White, she shaped the doctrine of the Seventh-day Adventists. The Seventh-day Adventists claim that they only believe in the Bible, but they also believe that the spirit of prophecy has continued in the person of Ellen White. Ellen claimed that she could not read the book she wrote, is part of the foundation of Seventh-day Adventist theology. And because she claimed that she could not read, she said that she had the gift of prophecy and that God was writing through her. Most of her works became official doctrine. But it has been well documented that she could read and write, and most of what she produced was some hodgepodge theology taken from other books she plagiarized. Most of her life was a lie. Her works were plagiarized fiction from her own hand. And do not ever try to sell me on the idea that they are Christians. Because the Seventh-day Adventists do not believe the atonement is complete. The Seventh-day Adventists teach that believers enter into a judgment of works which will determine their salvation. The Seventh-day Adventists teach that works plus grace equals salvation. Satan is said to bear our sins. Christians are said to stand before God without the intercession of Christ. They believe we can be sinless. They believe in soul sleep, 
They deny the biblical understanding of hell, and they teach that the Sabbath is the seal of God, and those who worship on Sunday will receive the mark of the beast. Out of this dangerous and counterfeit system of belief have come others that also believe that God was still revealing himself to the church through the prophets. The Branch Davidians broke off from the Seventh-day Adventists in 1929, the group that became famous in Waco, Texas, back in 1993. But we do not have to let the cults drive the conversation in Daniel 8. It can be understood. It can be seen for exactly what it is, a remarkable vision received by a true prophet of God. Back in verse 14 of our text, it literally reads, For 2,300 evenings, mornings, then the holy place will be restored. This is still coming out of the Third Empire, the Greek Empire. There's two legitimate schools of thought of what was predicted here. One belief is that the 2,300 is the total, meaning 1,150 evenings and 1,150 mornings. I think a better understanding is that this refers to 2,300 days that the temple would be restored after 2,300 days. Under their system, a day began when the sun went down. And if we simply look at the life of Antichus Epiphanes, we see the fulfillment of this 2,300 days. Starting in the year of 171 BC, on September the 6th of that year, and you move forward 2,300 days on the Hebrew calendar, in a period of over just six years, you see the fulfillment of verse 14. In 171 BC, the high priest of the temple was murdered. This was really the beginning of the end of peaceful relations between Antichus and the Jews. A line of illegitimate priests took his place, and on December the 25th in 167 BC, the sacrifices were stopped by force. The Greek altar was set up in the temple. This lasted until 165 BC. A man by the name of Judas Maccabeus led the effort to cleanse the temple of God, tearing out the idols, cleansing the temple. A priesthood was reestablished and the temple worship was restarted. To celebrate, they had the Feast of the Lights, known as the Feast of Dedication. You know it today as Hanukkah. But the lesson to walk away with here is that God, in his mercy, set a limit. God put a limit on how long he would allow the suffering and persecution to continue. God drew a line in the sand before the people predicted in this text were alive. God drew that line of how long this would continue. Let's read our next three verses again. Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning, that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Daniel was seeking the meaning of the vision, and before him was one who looked like a man. Verse 16 informs us that the one who stood before Daniel was the angel Gabriel. But according to verse 15, Gabriel looked like a man. When men write under their own power about the end times or about death, the focus tends to be on the powers of angels. You could see this in the writings from thousands of years ago, and you could see it in the movies and the books of our day. But God's word stands in total contrast, always making the focus on the message, not on the servants of God. It's actually quite remarkable how little the angels are mentioned in the Word of God. If you're reading through the Bible from the beginning 
Verse 16 is the first time an angel is actually mentioned by name. Aside from Satan, the only other angel mentioned by name is Michael. Focus on the message, not on the messengers. The name Gabriel means mighty one of God or hero of God. Gabriel also announced the coming birth of John the Baptist, and he announced to Mary the coming birth of Jesus Christ. But what do we see here? In verse 16, we learn that the voice of a man called out to the angel Gabriel. I tend to think that this was God speaking and commanding Gabriel to interpret the vision for Daniel. We already saw Daniel was in Babylon, but within the vision, he was in Shushan, Susa, located by the river Uli. In the vision, Daniel was still there, and this is where he heard the voice. Gabriel came over to Daniel. Daniel did exactly as any one of us would have done. The unmistakable impression given is that Gabriel is a powerful servant of God. Verse 15 said he appeared as a man, but verse 17 gives us the understanding that he didn't look like an ordinary man. Daniel was afraid, terrified, troubled. I don't think Daniel worshipped Gabriel, but he got down. He was afraid. He sank to the ground in awe. You find the same reaction in Luke 1 when Gabriel appeared to Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. Luke records that Zacharias was troubled and fear fell on him. Gabriel has that effect on people. Notice here in verse 17, Gabriel tells Daniel, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Again, here's another spot where we need to be careful in our interpretation of the word of God. Son of man just simply means that Gabriel was addressing him as a man, a human, not an angel like Gabriel. The other part of verse 17 that gets my attention is the phrase that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now, it's easy to jump, to read this in light of everything we know from the New Testament and to read into this, that this must refer to the end after the church age. A lot of people go down this road, and I think it's a mistake. Antichus Epiphanes fulfilled all the prophecies in these verses in chapter 8, a literal fulfillment that has already come and gone. But it is Not hard to see all the similarities, the obvious foreshadowing of the Antichrist that is to come and persecute the nation of Israel. But honestly, even though Antichus Epiphanes was a wicked man who violated the temple of God, the Antichrist will be much worse, more powerful, more diabolical than ever seen on earth. We can look at the fulfillment of this text and see the pattern, the type of evil that will come again under the reign of the Antichrist. Don't think of the time of the end as automatically referring to the tribulation. So go back to the question of verse 13. How long will the vision be? How long will the desecration of the temple be allowed to stand? The clear and present context is this leader that would come out of the kingdom of Greece and defile the temple of God. How long would he be allowed to defile the temple? Verse 14 was the answer. And the context of the end in verse 17 seems to fall right in line with this. The end of the desecration of the temple. The end of the reign of Antichus. We're going to see in just a minute in verse 19. These are events in the future from Daniel's day. Israel under persecution during the Greek Empire. Verse 18 contains the kind of information, the details that you would expect from a man who truly experienced division from God. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright. Daniel was stunned. 
The man had received a powerful vision, seen Gabriel, possibly heard the voice of God, and he was overcome in a deep sleep. The simple touch of Gabriel restored his strength and brought him back to consciousness. Take a look at verse 19. And he said, Look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. For at the appointed time, the end shall be. Again, future from Daniel's point of view. And the context is still of the Greek Empire, which we will see again in our next study of Daniel chapter 8. But jump ahead for just a second. Remember verse 20, Medea and Persia. Verse 21, the kingdom of Greece. So you have to be careful in verse 19. The context dictates the meaning, not us. The indignation spoken of is the reference to the holy and righteous anger of God against the nation of Israel. The day would come when God would use a lost man. God would allow a wicked man by the name of Antichus to correct his people. And certainly the day will come when God will allow the ultimate lawless man to strike judgment upon Israel and this world, when the wrath of God against sin will pour through the Antichrist. But here, notice again the end of verse 19. For at the appointed time, the end shall be. God had an appointed time when the desolation of the Hebrew temple would come to an end, when the persecution would halt, which would pave the way a few hundred years later for the arrival of both John the Baptist and the Christ. Romanian pastor Richard Wormbrand spent 14 years in prison for preaching the gospel. Those that held him captive had smashed four of his vertebrae. They cut him. They burned him but they could not defeat him. He testified, Alone in my cell, cold, hungry, and in rags, I dance for joy every night. During this time, he turned to a fellow prisoner, a man that he had led to the Lord before they were arrested. His response, I have no words to express my thankfulness that you brought me to the wonderful Savior. I would have it no other way. These two men, had an indescribable joy, even though they lived on the edge of death. This joy can be ours in Christ, and we're going to need it in the days before us. We do not know what day, what month, or what year the rapture will be. And we don't know how bad things will get before the Lord takes us home. But I do know the joy of the Lord that can be found in Christ. It starts with salvation, faith in Christ. It brings strength for today and hope for tomorrow. It lasts forever. There is no need to be defeated by the circumstances of life. Daniel proved this because the word of God gives us the assurance that no matter how bad it may look in our lives, God is still with us, still working in us and through us. God is preparing us for the life that is yet to come. Salvation in Christ is life's greatest blessing. Paul put it this way, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Look beyond your trials. Look beyond your struggles. Live in the presence of Christ and rejoice in the eternal life we have in Him. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. 
Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.